I'm Denise. She's a non-fiction editor. And I'm Louise. She's a fiction editor. And together, we're the Editing Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Editing Podcast. So this week, we're going to be chatting about proofreading and what you need to know if you're deciding whether you want to embark on this as a career. That's right. And so we don't ramble on for too long. We're going to look at six things you need to know today and then another six in the next episode. So why don't we start with a very quick overview of of today's six topics. Denise, you kick off. Okay. so first we're going to look at number one, how you can get work even if you don't have contacts in the publishing industry. Number two, how the market for proofreaders is vibrant and big. And number three, how training courses are a worthy and essential investment, not just in terms of money, but also your time. And then we'll talk about number four, why, although training is key, that in itself won't be enough to get you work. And then fifthly, that doesn't work, does it? I've messed up my (laughs) list there. Number five, we'll look at why even if you don't have any former editorial experience, you can still make a career out of this. And then number six, we'll rack up, wrap up, rack up. (laughs) (laughs) We'll wrap up by knocking on the head the idea that all proofreading work is poorly paid. Yeah. So let's start with how you can get work even if you don't have contacts in the publishing industry. Now, there's no doubt that if you want to proofread for the publishing industry, it can help if you have a contact or two, and they may well be able to give you a foot in the door. But that's all it will do. Publishers won't just hand you a book. You'll likely have to do a (laughs) test to prove your competence. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do if you don't have a contact? In that case, you'll have to make one. You can pick up the phone, write a letter and enclose a CV or resume or send an email. And if you've got the skills that publishers are looking for and you contact them and tell them this, then there's no reason why you can't acquire work from this sector, even if you have no existing in-house friends or colleagues. Yeah, so 10 years ago, I was like that. And I did have one contact in the publishing industry and they did test me and gave me work. But the rest of my clients were acquired through targeted direct marketing, letters, emails, phone calls. Yeah, yeah. And it's really important that we don't presume that all self-employed proofreaders and editors work for publishers and only for publishers. Publishers are only one type of client. Yeah, back in 2008, I reckon 90% of my clients are publishers. These days, 100% of my clients aren't publishers, not (laughs) traditional publishers anyway. They're all indie authors who are doing their own publishing. Yeah, yeah. And when I started, all my clients were publishers, and yet I had zero contacts. I'd come from being a physiotherapist in the NHS. And these days, while I still work for several publishers, my client portfolio is a lot wider. Mm. Businesses, academics, comms agencies and self-publishing authors. Yeah, contacts can help, but not having them doesn't mean you can't build a sustainable business. And Denise is absolute proof of that. Yeah. So the next thing budding proofreaders need to know is that the market is alive and well. And while some people say it's shrinking, actually, the opposite is true. Yeah, the market isn't shrinking, it's changing. It's even expanding in some sectors. More and more people are recognising the benefits of ensuring that their text is professionally presented. And in part, that's because our world is more public than ever. Anyone with an online presence, so a website, a blog, an online report, an ebook, has a public presence. Yeah, and if that public presence is represented by words, those words need to be polished. And that's where the editorial professional comes in. 
And of course, there's the booming independent publishing market with self-publishers uploading fiction and non-fiction to public spaces on a daily basis. And many of those writers are commissioning proofreaders. And so are NGOs, businesses, marketing and comms agencies, packages, schools, public sector organisations, students, charities, poets, musicians and traditional publishers, of course. Yeah, that's right. I think the only one of those that I haven't worked with has been poetry. All of the other ones, yep, I can tick them all. I did one bit of poetry once. Did you? Oh, I wouldn't even know where to start. I, I didn't feel I was I was only, I was proofreading. So, but even then, that was it was a challenge. Yeah. So it, it was a challenge to my um. Although I'm not particularly prescriptive anyway, it was um. Sorry. Di- yeah, yeah, that is the right word. Yeah. <laughs> um. It was. Although I'm more of a descriptive editor, I, I still found it a challenge in terms of the punctuation. Yeah. I think that's the biggest struggle I think mm-hmm. I would have in punctuation. Well, it's a little sidebar there. Yeah. <laughs> so the issue for any new, pre- any new proofreader really isn't whether the market is big enough, is it? The no. issue is how to be visible in that market. Absolutely. And that's where one of our favourite topics comes into play. <laughs> the value of targeted marketing in all its many guises. But we're not going to dig into that today. No, 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 no. But you can (laughs) check out our blogs, our other podcasts and resource centres on our websites if you want to find out more about marketing. Mm. So let's move on to the third thing that every wannabe proofreader needs to know. And that's that training courses are a worthy and essential investment. Too right. Now, there have been times when I've heard some really quite poor advice being doled out by people who probably don't know as much as they should about this profession. And they say that professional editorial training is too expensive and isn't worth investing in because the work isn't well paid enough to give you a return on that investment. Yeah, I've got a word for that, but I won't see what it is. (laughs) (laughs) I've also heard it said that no one pays attention to editorial qualifications anyway. Now, that's worth taking a closer look at because it's true that some clients are less interested in or find it difficult to assess editorial qualifications. That's Mm. absolutely true. But Mm. let's leave that for a moment. First, we should talk about the money and this return on investment idea that you mentioned, though I'm not actually sure we can even be that narrowly focused because it's not all about the money, is it? No, it really isn't. Um, When I did my training, I wasn't even thinking about return on investment. I was thinking about learning to do the job properly (laughs) so that I was fit for purpose. Me too, because I haven't had any training. I can well see how I'd have struggled to fulfill some clients' requirements. Traditional publishers in particular have quite precise expectations of a a professional proofreader that go way, way beyond typo hunting. (laughs) Oh, that is so true. But there is another issue. Uh, qualifications are one way though not the only way of building trust I mean I wouldn't let my hairdresser anywhere near me if she hadn't learned how to do her job properly and I'd rather pay a decent rate and trust the professional and proofreading is no different yeah and in terms of cost training to be a professional proofreader is a lot cheaper I mean a lot (laughs) cheaper than training to be a doctor a dentist or an electrician landing a few book-sized jobs will cover the cost of your initial training so I'd go as far as to say that the no return on investment argument is nonsense and that's a very polite way of putting it yeah (laughs) (laughs) so what about that issue that no one actually pays any attention to editorial qualifications Well, I think that's a fallacy. Some clients do. Sure, they won't just look at it, but it'll be part of the equation. And it's a first step before they test your competency. 
Absolutely. And and I know that the indie indie authors I work for now probably don't have a clue about the training provider I learned with, but I think they probably like to see that I have done that training, mm. that I've taken the time to learn the job. I don't know much about who the best training providers are for electricians, but I still expect my spark to have done the graft. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we mentioned just now about how training is just one of the markers of competence, you know, a first step, if you like. So let's look at that, because while we both rate professional training, I don't think either of us believe that courses in themselves are enough to actually get you work and enable you to build a sustainable business. Yeah, the the fact is that it doesn't matter whether you have distinctions and accreditations coming out of your ears and lots of real world experience. If no one knows you exist, they won't be able to be impressed by all your training. And to get work, you've got to put yourself in front of your clients. And that means visible, which means marketing. Oh, it's that old chestnut again. (laughs) Like we said earlier, we're, we're absolutely not going to dig into the different ways of marketing your proofreading business today. But it is important that you realise that this aspect of being a professional proofreader is just as important as any formal training. It just has to be done. Sorry. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So our penultimate thing you need to know is related to the first one. It's about how even if you don't have former editorial experience, you can still make a career out of this. You don't have to have a publishing background. You really don't. You really don't. We both know a ton of people who've made the effort to get trained and who've then marketed themselves using a chunky box of promotional tools and who've been able to secure work and build thriving businesses. Well, I'm one of them. You certainly are. (laughs) And it's a bit like a nation's economy, isn't it? So the governor of the Bank of England uses more than one instrument to stabilise the UK economy. And really, the business of proofreading isn't so different. Proofreaders, too, need more than one instrument to generate a stable client base and income stream. Well, I never thought I'd hear proofreading compared to stabilising the British economy. But hey, you learn something new every day. I just, yeah, I just, I just wanted to use the word instrument. I heard it on the news the other day and I quite like the framing of it. So, you know, just slip that one in there. Yeah, moving along now, nobody will notice. Yeah. So, as we were saying, you can contact publishers and packages directly via email, via letter or via the phone. You can try targeting those whose publication lists reflect your own knowledge base. For example, your education or career background. Denise, we're talking about marketing. We said we wouldn't talk about marketing. (laughs) Sorry, I know. Don't worry about it. I'm sure no one noticed that. Moving on. So start by finding out what the requirements are and learn those skills. And I'll move on and not say anything else about that now. Yeah. (laughs) So perhaps those potential clients want to know how to use proof correction language or want you to be familiar with particular industry recognized style guides or need you to be able to work on PDFs or or paper proofs or or using some other software system. And then you can tell them when you start promoting yourself. Cow. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. I won't say any more about marketing. (laughs) So, So let's wrap this up and talk about money. So we've already touched on this, but there is this myth that all proofreading work is poorly paid. And that's problematic from more than one angle. Oh, God, that so is. Not least because how on earth do we define what poorly paid even means? Mm. So what you think is low paid might be great for me and maybe because I have different needs, different expenses, or I live in a different part of the world where the cost of living is lower. Yeah, exactly. It's all relative. And the other problem with this notion is that not all clients pay the same rate. 
some publishers pay higher rates than others, and many expect quite different levels of intervention for the fee that they're paying. And then there are other client types, such as businesses, students and independent authors. These clients don't set the rate. We do. Whereas the, pub, the traditional publishers I used to work for tended to offer me a rate and I accepted or declined the job. But that wasn't always the case. But is that still how it works for you in the main? Yeah, mostly. Um, but there can sometimes be room for negotiation, particularly with clients um, whose books have been on for a long time and who know me and who trust my skills. Mm. But whether I'm setting the rate or my clients are, I'm always free to walk away. And that means I can earn a rate that I'm happy with and that meets my needs. Um, my needs is the key thing there because it's my needs, your needs that are important, not someone else's. It doesn't matter if someone else thinks a proofreading job isn't being offered at a good enough rate. All that matters is that it's good enough for me. Yeah, yeah. So evaluating how poor or otherwise the earnings from proofreading are is pretty much impossible if we approach it in a generalised way. And there is another thing to consider. Some organisations will pay premium rates for fast turnaround work. Yeah, years ago, I did some proofreading for a, a greeting card business who always needed a fast turnaround. And each print run involved printing thousands of sheets, each with 32 cards per sheet. And each print run cost them tens of thousands of pounds and one error on just one of those 32 cards meant the entire print run would have had to be junked oh gosh yeah it's not like a miss on a website which can be no. amended fairly easily in this case i mean there are no second chances with something yeah. like that are there yeah i can see how quibbling over a few hundred quid really wasn't what they were about it was all about quality every time yeah yeah and you work for reuters sometimes don't you often on a fast turnaround yeah, yeah. And again, they're not quibbling about rates. It's about knowing that I'll do the job to their high expectations and critically within their deadline. Yeah. And having a few higher paying clients like that gives you the freedom to accept lower paid work for others simply because you want to do it. Yeah, exactly. So you need to ask yourself what you're comparing proofreading rates with. Cleaning, stacking shelves in a supermarket, hairdressing, plumbing, farming, carrying out plastic surgery or being the CEO of Microsoft. Poorly paid means nothing unless you know what you need to earn in the first place. It's totally subjective. And it always takes time to set up a new business and you might decide to accept work um, from lower paying clients while you're building your client portfolio. Yeah, yeah. And so if you behave like a professional business owner in terms of training to ensure your work's high quality and you make sure you're visible, the concept of low pay, however you're defining it, doesn't have to define your editorial business. Excellent advice, Cal. <laughs> so in the next episode, we'll have a look at six more things you need to know if you want to become a proofreader. In the meantime, that's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can rate, review and subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whichever platform you prefer. Yes, thanks so much for listening. So if you'd like to help support the editing podcast, you can join our Patreon community for as little as £3 a month. We'd love to have you on board. So if you are interested in that, hop over to patreon.com forward slash editing podcast. We'll pop a link in the show notes for you. So she's been Denise. And she's been Louise. Join us again soon. Bye-bye. Bye.